we're continuing our study about how Jesus is coming into the world, helps us to find peace in troubled times. And that's really the, the emphasis we've had uh, over this past beginning in December, and certainly we'll run this through the end of the holiday. So last week we said a couple of very important things, but perhaps the biggest takeaway was that there is nothing we can turn to under heaven that will give us the, the complete and perfect peace in this life that, that Jesus can. And in fact, we drew a pretty sharp contrast to the reality that many of the things we seek peace in in life, they have the high potential to rob us of that peace because they are so volatile. For example, time and money and health and vocational success. Some of us, you know, we throw all of our eggs in that basket and it might even sustain us or give us peace for a season. But whenever that boat rocks, we are, we are literally robbed of our, our stability, hope, joy, and peace in life. And so the very nature of the Christmas message and the teachings of Jesus that we're studying this month are, are really meant to remind us that life on earth can often be very tumultuous. And genuine, lasting peace can be something in short supply. And one day, I said last week, you're sailing the tranquil seas of life. At the very next moment, you're in the middle of life's raging ocean. And because of this reality, God sends Jesus to earth. This is one of his primary things. He comes to redeem the world, but he comes also giving us these great promises of hope about how we can function while we are in this world. God sends Jesus to the earth to give us this unassailable hope, joy, and peace. And so how do we know this? Well, last week in John 14, uh, we fast forwarded from Jesus's manger to study a peace promise that Jesus gives his disciples and one that certainly has application to us. It is a gracious prescription that teaches us how we can be a people who find and live in his peace. And during the seasons of life, uh, when, when there really isn't any, that's the key here, is it's very easy to talk about the peace of Christ when life is okay. But the true rubber meets the road when the peace of Christ actually provides you peace during difficult circumstances in life. That is the place where our, our belief, we might even say our cognitive interaction with these, with these promises, at some point that has to be, redefine life's experience. Peace in the head has to lead, to lead to peace in the heart. And so, quick summary, this is all online, so I'm, I'm only going to take a minute here, but last week's talk, we looked at John 14, and the stage was set for the challenge Jesus' disciples were about to endure. Their world was pretty good up until the night they met with Christ in the upper room. And they're on the precipice, today we're on kind of on the back end of what's going on, but their world is falling apart right now. Jesus is about to be arrested uh, Judas has betrayed Jesus, Peter is about to deny Jesus, and all of the disciples are about to be on the run. They are literally going to run for their lives for these next days because there is a heavy hand of persecution now that runs after God's people. And that's why the backdrop of, of why Jesus' words about finding peace are so significant. I'm telling you, we cannot just relegate these promises to the candles of Advent on a Sunday. We fast forward from this to the, to the grown man Jesus and his words actually have a very real impact on our lives. So we don't want this just to be something that is nostalgic, although it certainly is that. We want it to be something that is the pointy end of the spear that drives how we see life. And so think about this. If you knew, if you, knew you were going to die tomorrow, and this was the last chance you had to teach your disciples something, you can imagine that Jesus would give them some of the most important stuff they needed to know, the stuff they needed to live and to thrive in this world and, and to continue the mission he had begun in them. And that's exactly what he does. This conversation continues. And this is, this is, is sort of like Jesus' last will and testament to them. He's, he's re-reminding them of the things that matter most as he leaves them. And one of the themes in this passage is that they will face the troubles of the world. It is, you can consider it, just as serious a promise as the fact that Jesus gives us his joy during them. 
multiple places in Scripture, including the words of Jesus, tell us on a regular basis that we will face troubles in this world. That was the first point of last week's talk. Nobody escapes them. We almost have to get to the place where we know that they are a normal part of life. And so to deal with them, Jesus reminds them of the gospel promise of his joy and peace that we first hear about in the manger. Last week, we established two waypoints to find peace in troubled times on the roadmap of life. And today, we're going to look at two more. You can almost consider this like, as we look at the trajectory of our lives, these are, these are great places we have got to check into in order to be able to move the promise of peace to something that really shapes and, in some cases, redefines our lives. So the first waypoint or, or truth I want to share with you this morning is this. If you want to find Jesus' peace in troubled times, then you have to know, you must know, how much you matter to God. You have to know st- just straight up that you are not a, an abstract utility in God's plan. You are actually somebody who God deeply and devotedly cares for. A lot of times, this is just a side note, it's not even in my notes, but a lot of times when we endure trial and trouble, we are always trying to figure out what God is doing and how he's working. And there is, there's a need to answer those questions. I'm not saying they're not important. My mind is, is, is always hungry to learn stuff. So I am, I am asking those types of questions. But what I find is that sometimes I can be so concerned with what God is doing around me that I forget that he actually wants to do something in me at that point. We can really easily look at these things as if God is doing something here or there. Trouble and trial is always about here and there. Or we can recognize that part of the ways that God shows us his love and grace during trouble and trial is the fact that he is present with us during them. So know that in your life, it doesn't matter what, where you are, mountaintop or valley, you matter deeply to God. And that is an important thing to know. John 16, 27 tells us this. The Father himself loves you. Think about that. God loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. It's this, it's this triad of love. Our love for Jesus, right, creates this place where God loves us like Jesus. It's beautiful. And what I want to say is, is if you want to figure out how to have peace in troubled times, you have to know you will never find true peace in this world until you have this truth in your heart. You, you cannot have the peace of Christ until you recognize the love that Jesus places in your life. And Jesus makes this clear all throughout his dialogue with the disciples. He repeatedly reminds them that everything he's taught them was given to them so that they would believe they could have peace in their hearts no matter what trouble they faced in life. And because this Christmas miniseries is really about finding God's peace, it's pretty crucial that we understand what Jesus means by peace. Because for some people, peace means like, I get my way and everything I want, and that means life is good. And I guess peace could be that. There are some times where what we want really does line up with what God wants, because we're at a place where we actually have grown in our hearts to want what God wants. But peace isn't always like that. And so I want to give us a definition, not through word this morning, but through a word picture instead of a literal definition of what peace is. I can give you the Greek definition here, but I want to give you the illustration of, I think, what those definitions paint. Think about this. Imagine your life is like a sailboat, um, and it's on a large ocean. And although uh, you might have a general understanding of the weather patterns of the sea, like you know what the sea does and you have weather reports, there is still a great deal of stuff that happens on the journey in the sea that you cannot predict or even prepare for. A great example, if you talk to a mariner, one of their, one of their greatest concerns about sailing or being in open water fishing is this idea of a, roadway, a rogue wave. You can know what's going on. You can have all the patterns and all the NOAA weather reports, but, the, but it's just very possible that out of nowhere a wave can come and ruin you, right? This is kind of what life is like. 
One day you're sunbathing on the deck of the boat, and things are pretty and tranquil, and the very next day some storm rolls in and it seems like you're at the mercy of a raging ocean. And you are no longer tranquil, but you're hanging on for dear life. This is a great metaphor for how life can often be for us. One day things are good and great, the next day not so great. And in certain situations, you don't even get a day of warning. It's more like a one-minute warning. Everything is okay like right now, and then you walk out of this place, and then something is not okay. Like when a loved person, uh, a loved one passes away, or you go to the doctor. This is so common. I've seen this so often in my pastorate. Somebody goes in for that routine checkup, and they come out with, a, with something that's not routine. You, know, you, just, you just go and think you're going to have lunch afterwards, and everything's going to be okay. And then it turns out that things sort of are not okay anymore. And I, I reference this particular issue a lot because I think our country is still reaping the, the, the negative benefits of this. But look at the recent economic problems our country has dealt with through, through what was, at least in my lifetime, the largest recession we've ever seen. You know, you, it's super common, especially if you were in the earlier part of this decade, um, to talk to people who thought they had this age-old myth of job security until everything went south and they were laid off. This still lingers today in our country. The, the effects of that are still very real. Or you had people that had built up what they thought were secure investments. You know, when you were 20, somebody said, put money away, 100 bucks a month for the rest of your life. and You'll be rich when you retire. And then like five years before retirement, the stock market crashed. And, and you wish you didn't give everybody that $100 over the last 30 years. Secure investments, funny, funny term, were actually not secure at all, right? They, people found that out the hard way. Those events remind us of how quickly the seas of life can become turbulent. Just look at the political climate in our country right now. It's not hard to kind of see that that this is a crisis point for us as a nation. I've never in my life seen division like this. If you don't think that the, the absence of peace in people's lives can really dictate how they act and behave and how they see life, all you have to do is just turn on the news for an hour, and maybe 10 minutes. I wouldn't even recommend an hour. It's still pretty critical and negative right now. Lots of people look to lots of things for peace. And sometimes we turn to things that are not peaceable at all. So there are these major things in life that can rob us of our peace, and we need to know that. <clears throat> but I also want to say that sometimes the troubles of life are, are less sensational than those major examples. But they're no less a threat to our peace. And if you were here the first year at Restoration, this story will make sense to you. Um, if you were not, it'll, it'll hopefully make sense to you. Um, I saw this happen when my son was in uh, kindergarten. My son's almost 11 now, so this is going back a ways. But he was in kindergarten, and I walked into my kitchen and my wife was actually talking to my son, who clearly was distressed about something. I didn't know what, but you can see it in the face of a child when something is wrong. And after fishing around for some information about what was happening, I learned that he was very worried that somebody was actually going to make fun of him at school. This was a, a really significant life crisis for him. It, obviously, for a you know, six-year-old, it is. And I wanted to know why. <clears throat> so I began to pick around a little bit of what, what was going on. And it seems humorous now, but it really wasn't humorous for him. It was because my wife had packed him. It was just after, uh, just after Valentine's Day. My wife had packed him a, a, a leftover little candy treat. Uh, that was a, it was a Care Bear gummy treat. So it was like a little pink package with, you know, creepy little bears with rainbows coming out of their head. That's what it was, right? And so he, and I hear some of you chuckling, right? And it is kind of funny. But this, this was a pretty legitimate concern for a six-year-old. It, ru it ruined him that day, robbed him of his peace. I mean, I, I wish we had some Transformer gummies, but we didn't. So we had to make do with what we had. And, and this is an interesting place, and it serves for a much larger point of what I'm trying to say today. You know, at that point, whether we are doing this to ourselves or the people we love, or we're dealing with something and somebody is sharing this with us, there are many ways we can counsel the human heart here. This is a crisis in somebody's life. Whether it's you lost your job, the stock market crashed, you know, 
you're disgruntled about the direction of the country or it's care bears in the kitchen. These are, these are decisions. There are places now where we have to make decisions about what we do next. And it's important to know that there is a way we can speak to the human heart that can at least bring some clarity and light to this. There is only one right way, okay? Many ways I can speak to this. Many ways we can speak to these issues. But there's only one right way, according to the truth of Christ's gospel, that can lead us to enduring peace. There's only one, one road you go down where you build up a, a spiritual muscle, if you will, to be able to deal with these things confidently. Living a life that pursues Jesus or a gospel-centered life means you have to learn to apply God's promises to your heart in any circumstance that tries to rob your heart of that, that peace. So the manger is not just you know, 16 songs in a month of worship on, in December. The manger matters every single day of life. The, the concept of, of peace and hope and joy and the preparation of the coming of Jesus, these candles represent daily living. And it is in the daily living that the challenges of the, prom, the, the promises of Jesus will be most challenged. You will have your peace challenged in the dailies of life. So the way you apply the gospel to your heart is by learning to identify the difference between surface level issues of what a person struggles with, um, but also being able to recognize the wisdom of what actually causes the issue. So I, I've used this analogy before. I like to see, I like to see the surface level issue. What we're doing is almost always symptomatic of something we are or are not yet. It's a root in the heart that creates a weed. You don't, you're not, you don't walk around in life very afraid of things just because you're afraid of something. Something is in you. Something has shaped you that caused you, causes you to be fearful. And that's the stuff that Jesus wants to deal with. He consoles us during the fear. Please hear me. But he wants to deal with the root of the heart so that something different grows out of us. Vibrancy in Jesus, no longer the fear of life or whatever the, the, the issue is. So, so in situations like this, whether it's my son's case or something you're dealing with now in my own life, you have to start seeing what's going on. And what's happening here is care bears are not the issue. In this moment, there's, there's the trading of a promise. S somebody relinquishes the peace of Jesus uh, for, for what they think about something else. In other words, the pack of candy. Think about this. The stock market, the job, the political climate, it becomes the God in life. And it now shapes life. The pack of candy is what we look to, to to console us and to comfort us, not the God that says, don't worry about the candy, I'm much bigger than it. On the surface level, this just seems like an innocent grade school concern. On the surface level, these things just seem like, oh, what happens on Tuesday? But the truth is that these things reveal deeper heart issues about who we are and what we look to in this world to find our identity in this world. And what simply happens here, and you can apply this to any single thing you deal with. My son loses peace that morning almost six years ago, because he cares more about what somebody might say about him in a classroom than he does what God has already said about him. That's the reality of this situation. And it is usually the reality of why we lose our peace. At some point, we give the power to something or somebody else to define us. And that is an issue. Because there are many people in life who will define us helpfully. They will want our, the best for us. But there are also people that might say things or do things to us that erode our identity. And so what happens here is, is when we turn to something looking for it to fulfill us like God as if it is God, it will not. And it will eventually rob us of our peace. At some point, that will betray you. You and I are going to get the same result on a grown-up level when we forget about how much we matter to God. And so think about this. I can speak the truth of the gospel to the heart. We can speak the truth of the gospel to our hearts. Or we can teach ourselves other things. Uh, you know, kind of take this and apply it in your own life. I could have said to my son, listen, don't worry about this. Uh, who cares what people think? If you've ever been dismissed by that like that, when, when, you, when you share your heart with somebody else, 
uh, that's like they're just denying what you're going through. And that's just not a good way to counsel. It's people we want to get on the level with people and recognize like, hey, I know this is hard. I don't really get it, but I know it's hard. And I want to be here for you. So I could have said that. Or I could have went the bravado route. This was, you know, my dad's MO. And I love my dad. He's, he's made me a lot of who I am. And he'll tell you as well as I have told him, there are things I want to pass on to my son like that and things that I don't want to. Um, and this is one of them. Um, but my dad went the bravado route with me growing up. I could have said to my son, you know, uh, listen, Aiden, uh, you know, we were so poor growing up that uh, that we couldn't, couldn't even afford Care Bears. You know, you just need to suck this up. My mom packed me tree bark, and that was tough because there was only, literally, there was one tree on my block in Brooklyn. I still remember it in my head. So it was like a journey for her to get it, right? Effectively telling him, yeah, do this in your own strength, right? Here's a coping mechanism. Suck it up. Suck it up. Uh, totally disconnect from Jesus. Or we can go another way. We can start to, to teach what, the, what Advent shows us. We can teach the promises of what Jesus says to our heart. We can apply the words of Jesus to combat the things that are not of Jesus. I can share with him the gospel promise of, of Christmas that Jesus has been giving us throughout this whole teaching. You know, in, in John 16, we're not talking about Christmas. We're talking about the real-world effect of what Christmas brought. In that instance, my son lets a little bag of candy have a way to say about him and this person in the world, and as a person in the world, than God does. And that's how I needed to speak to his heart. And I, I want to say that I think that's how we all need to speak to our hearts and those in our lives that are struggling with stuff. Um, if you're at this place where, you know, your emotional troubles depress you, um, you're questioning purpose in life. Uh, if you know somebody who has lost a job or a nest egg uh, because of the bad economy, I mean, I can tell you this for restoration. Um, we have a lot of people that are just not with us today because they had to move to other places for work. And some of them, you know, that, that happens. I mean, that's the reality of this. Um, if you're still like wondering, you know, what what January is going to look like, what, no matter who your candidate was, this is a big thing today. I'm not trying to get political here, but I'm saying you can see in our country what happens when when folks begin to place an ultimate hope on a politician. And I'm telling you, we need to have hope in our politicians because they're running our country. But we also need to recognize that we're not supposed to have the level of hope in them that we do in Jesus. This is what happens. People, people are robbed of their peace when they prescribe them that weight. Or if you're dealing with something here I haven't mentioned, right, that is currently robbing you of Jesus' peace, you have to remind your heart of what Jesus says in verse 27. Those troubles do not have the final say in whether or not you can have peace in this world. You can give them the permission to do that, but they do not have the authority to do that because your peace is not built on those things. It was supposed to be built on the promise of God that we speak about. And what God says is, you are my child. I love you and I care about you. Nothing will change that ever. So you may eat your candy in peace, which my son did. You can live your life in peace. You can know that if the seas rage right now, God is with you. And you can pursue rest because God's promise never changes, even though your circumstances might. You have to know the source of your strength when the, when the seas get rough. And I want to share with you this quote. Um, this, is, this was a game changer for me um, from Gary Burge. I read this many, 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 many moons ago. But I'll share it with you this morning. Uh, he, he wrote a very exhaustive novel, uh, excuse me, commentary on the, on the book of John. He's a well-known New Testament scholar. And he describes the evidence of this promise that we're talking about in a Christian's life. Peace and trouble, how they interact. I want to read it to you. It'll be behind me. He says, it is essential that we keep in mind, and this is where we go wrong. We talked about this last week. It is essential that we keep in mind that peace and trouble do not negate one another. Often in life, we put these things on a scale. When there is trouble, there is no peace. When there is peace, there is no trouble. But what Jesus says is that's not the way the scale is supposed to work. They're supposed to be level like this at all times. It is essential that we keep in mind that peace and trouble do not negate one another. The peace of Jesus is a condition of the heart that takes the uncertainties and struggles of this world seriously. There is empathy. 
but like a seagull riding the surface of a turbulent sea, is able to climb swells and drop into the valleys without being ruined by worry. You, you fly just above them because you know that your God is in control of the sea. So if you have a scale in your life and the economy is out of order and peace trumps trouble or trouble trumps peace, you have to know that true peace like what Jesus says can only be found when you live the way you were created to live in a vibrant relationship with God. When you choose to take God at his word and believe that you can have his peace no matter what's happening in your life. And that's what Jesus wants you. That's the way that he wants us to live. It's also uh, the second thing that he says in this passage, and it should convince us all the more of why this is true. He's essentially leading, saying, you need to know that I love you during trial. Peace is present and available for you in all times. And true to form, the reason we can have peace is because he's promised it to us. The second thing he tells us is this. The reason you can have peace in troubled times is because Jesus has already overcome the world. He's already come to trouble. So he's not saying you can have peace because you can do it on your own. He's saying you can have peace because I've already overcome the trial you deal with. John 16, 32 through 33. I'll reread this to you. Do you now believe? Sarcasm. We're going to get to that in a moment. Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. Think about this. God Almighty says, you will leave me all alone. Two chapters ago, these guys were like dying on the hill for Christ. And Jesus says, I want to show you that you do not know, you do not believe yet what I'm telling you. Because in about an hour, you're going to act like you don't know me. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. There's the precedent right there. Jesus in his trial, abandoned by all, is never alone because his Father is still with him. I have told you these things, he says, so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The, the medicine for trouble is belief in the promise that Jesus has overcome the world. And this is a very important promise, especially to those who are currently dealing with worldly troubles, like the disciples right now. Uh, in this verse, there's a forewarning here. Um, and this is one of the problems that we have, I think, in Western Christianity. I share this a lot, is that we're, we're a very didactic lot of people, meaning... We love teaching and preaching and sermons and Bible studies, and these are very important things. But issues of life oftentimes transcend these, these, these mechanisms. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, here's an instance where the disciples don't have another thing to go to to figure out how to work this out. What's happening is, is trouble came, and right now they have to practice their faith in a real-world environment. And so this is where these environments are really meant to shape the way we live they're meant to give us fuel, if you will, to, to process life, whether this is in evangelism or mission or disciple making or in a case like this where Jesus talks about the care he provides for us. There isn't always a place to go and study some more about something. Sometimes the wave comes and your boat is in the water and you've got to figure out how to handle this stuff in the, in the middle of, of this issue. Like I said, the same is true for the disciples. One minute life is calm, the next the world falls apart. And one of the warning points of this teaching that we get um, from the disciples is this. It's exactly what I'm talking about. I didn't reference this today, but just prior to this, the disciples rather arrogantly tell Jesus they have all this figured out. They essentially are saying, like, I've heard this a lot. Like, I have 19 podcasts on peace in my, in, in my iPhone. Uh, and and I, I have a couple of, like, blogs I read about peace. And I've got books on peace. And, man, I'm really, I'm really in tune with the peace of Jesus. And they say, we got this. You're God. The world's tough. Peace is there. We're good to go. And then the first time they're actually put in a zone where what they've learned about peace has to shape life, they show that they don't know about peace at all. And what I want to say here is that 
we want to be careful to not embrace this type of arrogance. They serve as an object lesson to us that sometimes our amens are not necessarily truly, truly as they're meant in the Greek. We want to constantly ask ourselves if we get this to the point where it shaped life. And so what happens is, is Jesus responds to that arrogant attitude by gently telling them their, their ensuing actions prove they don't get it. And I think this is a great thing for us to think about. When we talk about how we know Jesus, we really do want to see if our life matches up to that. If, if the promise we get actually shapes reality, if, if peace promised is actually peace realized in our lives. So what happens here is Jesus knows they're all about to live like they've never heard this stuff before. You will all leave me alone, he says. And that's why I say there's some sarcasm when he says, do you now believe? He's not saying, like, do you now believe? He's saying, like, do you really, do you really believe? I wish I could, could bring the inflection here. I wish we could have his voice here to say it. But that's what he's saying. Do you really believe this stuff? Because you're all going to leave me like you don't know me. It is a gentle rebuke more than it is a serious question. Because he knows the trouble is coming and the furthest, furthest thing from their hearts is going to be peace. The disciples will run for their lives. And there's a lesson for this in us. It is entirely possible for us to think that we can believe and understand the power of God's gospel promises when we're, in the midst, uh, when we're not in the midst of the trial. It is very easy, I'll tell you, to write, to write sermons about trouble, to discuss this stuff when, when there might not be any in life. But it is very difficult when, when we have to process these things and when there is trouble. And so what I want to say is, you have to know that your, your, the way your heart engages these ideas, these truths, is really going to be proven in whether or not you actually experience the reality of the promise whether or not you overcome the troubles of the world when they show up at your doorstep. And so you're probably like me saying, well, that sounds good, but how do we do that? <laughs> like, how do we get to this place of peace? Well, this is how we'll come around third this morning. In verse 28, the verse will not be behind me, but the sections of it will as we walk through this. Um, Jesus gives the disciples four key reasons of why he's able to overcome the world and why we, can, we now can too. If you want to know why Christmas and Easter matter, this is it right here. He says four very si- simple things. That actually give us the ammunition of why we can trust and believe that Jesus has overcome the world. And our troubles and trials are at the heels of his foot. He says this. He says, I came from the Father. I entered the world. Came from the Father. Entered the world. And now I'm leaving the world and I'm going back to the Father. That's verse 28. Okay. And that verse is the summary statement of the whole gospel of Jesus. This is one bookend. And what I just said is the other one. It's the fulfillment of the manger. Those four statements explain what Jesus had to do so that we could know Jesus, be restored to him, be forgiven of our sins, and why we can now live in the promise that he's made to us about his joy and peace. So let's put our our thinking caps on for a moment because I want to walk through these ideas to better understand God's redemptive work in the world, why the manger matters, and why he alone can overcome our troubles and fulfill, deliver on the promise of peace. I'll be very brief. The first thing Jesus says is, I came from the Father. And so if you read the Bible, you'll know that this is, um, the fancy term for this is we say it's Christ's preexistence or his divinity. And this debunks a lot of the issues that people have with Jesus in our world today. When Jesus says, I came from the Father, what he's saying is, hey guys, I'm not, I don't just know God. I'm not just, I'm not, I'm not just like God. I'm not an acquaintance with God. I am God. I come from the Father. Why does that matter on a sermon, in a sermon when we're talking about peace? I'll tell you why. Because he is, he is framing, if you were with us in our Philippians study, he is framing why his lordship gives him the ability to deliver on his promises. Without statements like this, Jesus is a guy making promises he can't keep. And so what, what, he's, what he's very eloquently saying is, Scripture teaches us, okay, he created the world, that the world is his, foot, is his footstool, that he sits upon a throne in heaven, that everything in this world eventually bends the knee and acknowledges that he is Lord. I am God, I come from the Father. And I want you to think about this. 
that also includes your troubles. You cannot exclude that. You can't say God is in control of all things and shaping the world. You know, we have all these poetic statements, but, but then we forget that when the trouble comes. Because Jesus is God and Lord, he is Lord of all. And he is the sovereign Lord of your trouble and your trial. Rest in that for a couple of days and see how your heart feels. For all of eternity, Jesus reigns with God like this, right? Except for one brief period in time, which is the second part of his statement. He goes on to say, I came from the Father, but, but I entered the world. I entered the world. Jesus' words here teach us why, why we celebrate Christmas. This is the doctrine of his coming, his, incarna- or his incarnation. That this all-knowing, all-powerful, always-existing God, he humbles himself and becomes a servant by becoming one of us. He lives like one of us. He suffers like one of us, ensuring the fact that he would never speak to your troubles as if they were some abstract thing, some philosophy. He speaks to your troubles in a unique way because he has gone through them himself. You know, he died. He had his life taken from him. He was prosecuted and persecuted. He gave away things he needed for himself. He suffered, right? He brought joy and hope. He did what you and I do every day. And this is one of the reasons why God has to become man. It's why we have to have a manger. We have to have a manger. Without a manger, we don't have this, this relationship with God. We don't have the Lord of all with us in trouble. And the second reason he gives us, he, he comes to the manger because oh, he comes to earth, right, to, to be like us. But he also says that I entered the world so that I could leave it. He gives a reason. He says, listen, I, not only did I come to the world to be like you, but eventually I had to leave, leave you. This is where the disciples are with him now. He's telling them I'm about to go away. And scripture also teaches us that Jesus enters the world and lives like one of us because he also had to die like one of us. We won't spend a lot of time here because this is our emphasis for Easter, but this is a reference to his death on the cross for us. What he's saying is, listen, even the weight of sin that humanity has committed against my father and the sin we commit against each other, um, I'm going to deal with that too. He says that's pretty weighty stuff, and it requires a penalty, one you can't pay. So so I'm going to deal with that for you guys. I thought we'd get more than one praise the Lord on that. (laughs) So you guys are like, I don't say praise the Lord. I'm under 30. <laughs> Listen, this is important, okay? Jesus lives his kingly throne in heaven, not to benefit himself in any way, but to bankrupt himself so that he can he can restore us to God. And once he makes his sacrifice for all over humanity, he defeats death and sin, he fulfills God's requirements, his time on earth is up. And this is the last thing he says. He says, Now I'm going back to the Father. And this is his resurrection and his ascension. And it teaches us some important things. Jesus had to die for the sins of the world. Important. What the resurrection shows us is that death and sin could not keep him down. There is, there is nothing that can make sense, right? If he just said, I'm the Lord and everything bows to me, then there is nothing that keeps him down. His resurrection foreshadows the promise of the manger. It's the promise of life overcoming all else. That those who are in Jesus no longer have to fear death. We don't have to fear anything. We don't have to fear trouble or trial because Jesus is the Lord of them. And after he returns to his Father in heaven, his ascension, the Bible tells us, Right now, he sits at the very place he began this dialogue with us. He's at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. He sits at God, no longer a slain lamb, but a risen son, looking at the world, accomplishing many things. But the thing we talk about this Christmas is he looks at your life and intercedes for you on a regular basis. He is looking at you right now, caring about you. Your struggle that I don't know about, he does. And he wants to be engaged in that with you. He is working in all areas to bring about God's glory and our good through his Holy Spirit at all times. 
So this means our troubles, no matter how bad they are, I love this word. <clears throat> they are his footstool. They bow to him. And consequently, they don't have power over us anymore. And so these statements are why Jesus says, I overcame the world. And it's why he says, you can too. So right now, if you're here saying, I'm hearing this, but I still feel like I can't win when it comes to the troubles of this world, I want you to know there's great hope for you. Um, in some, some senses, that common feeling might even reveal to a certain degree that, that maybe you're at where the disciples were before what we're talking about today. Maybe you don't understand this as much as you think you do. And I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm just saying, if God shows you that today, then, then ask him to help him to make this stuff real. Right? We want you to be where God wants you to be, and that's believing this. Um, ask yourself, is this promise of, of joy and peace and hope something you believe in? Because you see, your ability to overcome the troubles of the world, this is the great thing about this. Your ability to overcome the troubles of the world, at least in God's economy, has never been based on your ability or my ability. It's always been based on Jesus' work in the four areas that we just spoke about. The power comes from the fact that Jesus has already done that, past tense. He's, he's gone through those four waypoints, past tense. He already overcame the troubles of this world. And what this means is he's already defeated the troubles you face in life. They might hurt, but they can't sting you to the point of breaking you, unless you permit them. So just like joy, this is a past tense promise already applied to your life. But you have to trust and believe deeply in order to apply that promise, in order to experience the peace it promises. And I'll leave you with this, because I, I guess what I want to say is, I want to look at somebody in the Bible who, who faced this on a pretty regular basis, but actually lived this life. I want us to see that there is hope. And it goes back to the, to the Apostle Paul. We'll, we'll look at one last verse this morning. Look at the Apostle Paul's writings in Romans. This will also be behind me. Um, to see what believing this promise looks like from the human side. And what's interesting about this passage is that he directly references the four promises Jesus just made us in John. They're all in here. If you listen to this, they're here. Romans 8, 31 through 35. In the context of speaking about trouble, he says, What then shall we say in response to these things, to the things that break us and hurt us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate? Answer this question in your heart. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Nope. Hardship? Persecution? Or famine or nakedness or danger? Or so nakedness simply meaning the absence of everything. No material in life. You know how the Bible answers that question? Nothing can separate you from God. Nothing. No trouble can separate you from him. Because he's already overcome it. Nothing has the power to separate us from Jesus. And that's why Paul is able to answer this question so confidently when faced with so many hardships. The question you have to ask yourself right now is have you answered it in the same way? And so this Christmas season, I want you to think about why the scripture, this is the, I will ask you this same question until we have Christmas Day. This Christmas season, ask yourself, scripture refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. That is one of his titles. And I want to know if you believe that. When you walk out of here, do you see him as your Prince of Peace? Because he is. And if you're not there yet, we want to help you to get to that place. Rest on somebody's shoulder to figure that out. As we move into response time, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying about, to you about his peace, the absence of his peace, and what are you going to do about it when you leave this room?
Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, for another candle and another purpose that it gives us in life. And today we just really drop an anchor on the fact that you are our God, you love us, and you are one who brings us joy no matter what goes on. Joy and emotion, certainly, but we speak of a different type of joy for those of us who are in Jesus. We speak of what we can truly identify as an identity. It's a trait that you put in us. And because you have put it in us, God, it is, it is impenetrable. And so I pray today that no matter how we look at life, we would leave today knowing that your joy exists in us. In fact, you might say it's a tiny earthquake waiting to rumble. And I pray, Lord, that you would burst this open in all of our hearts today. May we see the rest of these weeks, these days we have ahead of us, from nothing less than the angle of the goodness and your, of your grace, of the promise of who you are. May we, as we pray, reflect, and respond, experience joy in ways never experienced before. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.